We were very saddened by the death of David Foster Wallace. The novelist, short story writer, and essayist apparently hanged himself Friday. He was 46. New York Times book critic Michiko Kakutani wrote an appreciation today in which he said Wallace used his prodigious gifts as a writer, his manic, exuberant prose, his ferocious powers of observation, his ability to fuse avant-garde techniques with old-fashioned moral seriousness, to create a series of strobe-lit portraits of a millennial America overdosing on the drugs of entertainment and self-gratification. In the New York Times obituary, Bruce Weber, Bruce Weber described Wallace as an heir to modern virtuosos like Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo, and an influence on younger tour de force stylists like Dave Eggers and Jonathan Safran Foer. We're going to listen back to an excerpt of the interview I recorded with David Foster Wallace in 1997. I, you know, I really like the way you, you write about uh, a pleasure and how um, difficult it can be <laughs> to to really achieve. Um, you write about pleasure in The Infinite Jest, and I'm thinking, you know, one of the things relating to that in Infinite Jest, uh, one of the characters finds that, that marijuana is marijuana is no longer a pleasurable experience. It just makes him terribly self-conscious and therefore anxious. And I'm wondering what happens to you when you do something that's supposed to give you pleasure and that just makes you uncomfortable or anxious. Boy, I'm not really even sure how to respond to that. I think, look, a lot of the impetus for writing Infinite Jest was just the fact that um, that I was about 30 and I had a lot of friends who were about 30 and we'd all, you know, been grotesquely overeducated and privileged our whole lives and had better health care and more money than our parents did. And we were all extraordinarily sad. And um, I think it has something to do with, with being raised in an era when really, um, the ultimate value seems to be, I mean, a successful life is, let's see, you make a lot of money, um, and you have a really attractive spouse, uh, or you get, um, you get infamous or famous in some way, um, so that it's a life where you basically experience as much pleasure as possible, which ends up, which ends up being sort of empty and low calorie. The, the reason I don't like talking about it discursively is it sounds very banal and cliche, you know, when you say it out loud that way. Believe it or not, this was, this came as something of an epiphany to us at around age 30, sitting around talking about why on earth we were so miserable when we've been so lucky. Well, when did you realize that, uh, all the, all the benefits you had in an educated middle class life weren't bringing you happiness. Well, I, I, look, I guess it. I guess it sort of depends on what what you mean by happiness. I mean, it's not like we were walking around fingering razor blades or anything like that. But it just sort of seems as if um, we we sort of knew how happy our parents were, and we would compare our lives with our parents and see that at least on the surface, or according to the criteria that the culture lays down for a successful, happy life, we were actually doing better than a lot of them were. And so why on earth were, you know, were we so miserable? I, I don't think, I, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest that, that it was, you know, a state of constant clinical depression or that we all felt that we were supposed to be blissfully happy all the time. There was just, um, I have a very weird and amateur sense that, that an enormous part of like my generation and the generation right after mine is just an extremely sad sort of lost generation, which when you think about the material comforts and the political freedoms that we enjoy is just strange. You write about how irony can become not only tiresome, but even tyrannical. 
What are some of the problems you see with the ironic voice, whether you're a viewer watching television or a writer using it in your fiction or essays? Well, a, a vivid example to use right now is how I feel in here answering some of the questions you were asking about pleasure. Um, my, the, the beads of perspiration I get on my forehead, I'm so terrified of sounding like Bill Bennett or, uh, you know, Church Lady, who's been parodied on Saturday Night Live, or, God forbid, Stuart Smalley, who's been parodied on Saturday Night Live, that this entire how to talk straight about anything that really means anything um, that might sound cliche, that might sound uncool, might sound unhip, I mean, there's an absolute terror that goes along with it. And I know, because most of my friends are my age and younger, that this is not just me, that there is some weird way that um, if, if, if the greatest sin in the past was, you know, obscenity or shock, the greatest sin now is appearing naive or old-fashioned so that somebody can give you a sort of a very cool arch smile and devastate you with one extraordinarily crafted line that puts kind of a hole in your pretentious balloon. Now, does that, is that a problem for you as a writer? Do you feel that there are certain sentiments, certain, like, heartfelt sentiments that you're afraid to deal with because it might sound square and corny? Well, it's more complicated than that because usually if you're writing fiction, you're dealing with characters who themselves will have heartfelt sentiments but who themselves live in this culture right now and thus face all the impediments to sort of dealing with those parts of their lives that, you know, that we do. So it would be, it would be not only silly but unrealistic to have a character saying that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, other writers with whom I talk about this stuff, um, it's more just this um, – a lot of writers are tired of doing kind of hip, slick, funny, dark, um, uh, exploding hypocrisy, underlining once again the point that life is a farce and we're all in it for ourselves and that the point of life is to amass as much money slash fame slash sexual gratification, you know, whatever your personal thing is, um, and that everything else is just glitter uh, or PR image, that we're tired of sort of doing that stuff over and over and over again, yet to do stuff that, that flies in the face of that is to risk becoming the bridges of Madison County guy. Mm-hmm, I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that would seem on the surface of it to counteract that is gooey, hideous, horrible, um, retrograde, cynical stuff. One of the characters in Infinite Jest is a, a, a tennis player, and you were a champion tennis player when you were. I was not. I deny. Okay, not I deny champion. steadfastly that I was a champion. I played competitive tennis on a regional junior level. You, you I were, was not a champion. I don't want anybody from my okay. hometown to hear me profess the word champion. You were a darned good tennis player. <laughs> I was decent by competitive standards. <laughs> okay, good. And this is when you were about, what, age 12 to 15? Something like that, yeah. Now, did all your self-consciousness interfere with your performance on the court? This is a marvelous setup. Well, of course. I mean, this is... the. One of the great mysteries about athletes and why I think they appear dumb to some of us is that they seem to have this ability to turn off. I I don't know how many of your listeners have this part in their brain, but uh, what if I double fault on this point? Or what if I miss this free throw? Or what if I don't get this strike with the entire bowling team, you know, hanging? The professional athletes and great athletes, at first I thought it was that that stuff doesn't occur to them. But, but, uh, you know, when I hung out with the, the pro tennis player for the tennis essay, it occurred to me that it's more like they have some sort of muscle that can, that can cut that kind of thinking off. But that is literally paralyzing. You can end up, you can end up like a bunny, you know, with, in, in the headlights of an oncoming car if you do that to yourself enough. Did you have that ability to turn it off? No. And that is, that is, 
I was a middlingly talented athlete, but my big problem, and the coach told me at age 13, kid, you got a bad head. And, he, and what he meant was I would choke. I would begin thinking about, oh, no, what if this happens? And then I would say, well, shut up, don't think about it. And then I would say to myself, but how can I not think about it if I'm not thinking about it? And meanwhile, you know, I'm standing drooling on the baseline going through this whole <laughs> not very interesting game of mental ping pong while the other guy is briskly going about the business of winning the match. David Foster Wallace recorded in 1997. He took his life Friday at the age of 46.